everyone, and welcome to the Friday, June 11th, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, elections law changes, the local impact of property tax changes, Rob Sand discusses his 2022 calculations, and rare bipartisan outrage over an immigration issue. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprises. With me today are Amy, Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Aaron. You can call me Amy Courier, too. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. you're such a big deal that you're just uh, Amy Courier. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the On Iowa Politics podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. First up this week, apparently Iowa is first in the nation in more than just the caucuses. Turns out Iowa was a trendsetter in making significant elections law changes this year, including by reducing the time for early voting. Many other Republican-led states, Florida and Texas, perhaps most notably among them, have taken up similar efforts in recent weeks. That's old news in Iowa, where lawmakers passed a bill rapidly, it should be noted, and that bill was signed into law way back in early March by Governor Kim Reynolds. Hey, what took you so long, Texas and Florida? Tom, with those other states bringing voting rights and election security back into the national conversation, you uh, have been revisiting Iowa's election laws changes including an interview with one of the bill's sponsors, Senator Robbie Smith from your neck of the woods. Uh, tell us about that interview and, and your story uh, without giving away the farm. So our listeners also read that story in their favorite Lee or Gazette newspaper this weekend. Yeah, so uh, Iowa voters will have less time and fewer options to vote early in person or by mail-in ballot under the uh, sweeping changes to Iowa election laws that was passed this spring. Uh, the first in a Republican-backed uh, nationwide push to pass so-called election integrity measures that uh, critics warn will disenfranchise voters. Um, as you mentioned, Iowa Republicans, this legislative session moved swiftly to place uh, new hurdles on casting ballots uh, before Election Day, uh, limiting a voting method that has grown, uh, that has had growing appeal for both Democrats and Republicans. Nearly six out of 10 Iowa voters cast ballots before Election Day 2020. Um, and as you mentioned, the um, proposal sped through the legislative process being introduced and passed by the Iowa legislature in, I want to say, less than a week, um, making Iowa first among at least 14 states that have passed uh, new voting restrictions, um, including limiting uh, early and, and mail-in voting options. Republicans say the goal is to prevent voter fraud and reassure voters that Iowa's elections uh, are secure that despite Iowa having no history of fraud and none reported in the state in November's general election, which saw a record turnout. Um, so I talked to um, Davenport Republican State Senator Robbie Smith, um, who was a key sponsor and floor manager um, of that bill in the Senate, um, who uh, continues to say that, um, quote, these reforms continue to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. Um, and while Democrats claim that the Iowa law amounts to voter suppression, Smith argues some provisions in the bill will increase voter participation. Um, the legislation extends some deadlines to request absentee ballots, uh, which Smith said would allow uh, for more people to vote absentee, 
Um, it extends from three days to 10 days, the time period in which individuals who are hospitalized or admitted to an assisted living program or healthcare facility um, expands the time that they can request an absentee ballot, and it provides more time for individuals who fail to sign the affidavit on the envelope when returning the ballot. But while the new law addresses some concerns raised by county auditors and advocates for vulnerable populations, um, Democrats and county election officials argue the changes attack the Democratic voting process and will make it even harder for thousands of Iowans to have their absentee ballots counted. Um, so as, as we mentioned, you know, some of the big um, measures or, or parts of the bill or the new law um, shortens the state's early voting period, shortens the period to request mail-in ballots, and bars election officials from proactively sending ballot request forms to voters. Um, and voting rights experts, county election officials, including um, the, the president of uh, the state association of county auditors, uh, Republican Sioux County um, auditor, uh, say and argue that the changes will make it harder for minority, elderly, and disabled voters to cast ballots. Um, the, uh, the, the law is being challenged in court. Um, there was a lawsuit filed um, by uh, the League of United Latin American uh, Citizens of Iowa, uh, which is being represented by Washington-based voting rights lawyer um, Mark Elias, um, who is also challenging similar um, voter suppression bills uh, across the country. Um, and uh, according to their lawsuit, taken as a whole, the bill targets and restricts virtually every aspect of, of the voting process. Uh, I was saying that it's it's not it's not necessarily a, a new issue, uh, but as we said, with other states kind of taking up similar efforts, um, kind of back in the focus here. Uh, definitely watch for Tom's uh, story this weekend. Uh, does a great job of of going through uh, everything that's happened here in Iowa, and it'll be interesting as we've talked about on this podcast before. And and Tom and I talked a little bit offline before we started rolling here. Um, uh, maybe look for that in a future outtakes episode of the podcast. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you know it's it's going to be interesting to see the impact of this, and 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 it could impact both parties. You know the assumption is Democrats tend to vote early more often, but obviously a lot of Iowans voted early um, in in this past election in an election which Republicans were very successful in Iowa. So uh, it'll be very interesting to kind of monitor that impact moving forward. So we move on next to another issue to come out of the state house. This year, state lawmakers pulled a Lucy and pulled the football away from Charlie Brown when they voted to phase, state, phase out state funding that was designed to refill local government's property tax revenue mm. that was reduced by state property tax reform back in 2013, those blockheads. Uh, Amy, <laughs> you've been uh, talking to folks in the Cedar Valley about this uh, for a story that I believe is also going to run this weekend, correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, mm -hmm. what, are you, what are you hearing there? Well, schools aren't as worried about this money because there was another portion of the bill that is sort of replacing that funding for them. And they're mostly only losing out on PEPL funds. But cities and counties are really going to be hit by this. Um, we're talking millions of dollars in some cases, um, at least hundreds of thousands for, for smaller schools or for smaller cities and counties. Um, but for example, like Waterloo got 1.75 million last year in the backfill and they've used it from everything from police and fire to economic development and it's been a really crucial part of the budget um the mayor has said you know we run our city extremely tight on really uh 
tight margins. Um, and this is going to have to result in a raise in property taxes. So, you know, cities like that are basically going to be <clears throat> taking the brunt of the the worry from taxpayers that their taxes are going to be higher. And it's because this backfill is going away. Now, some cities have built it in. I talked to um, the mayor of Cedar Falls. Um, their backfill is only a little less than $600,000. Um, they specifically put that money only for one-time capital improvements, not normal operating expenses. Um, so they are more easily able to sort of cut those out um, without necessarily raising taxes. At least at this point, um, they're pretty confident that they won't immediately have to raise taxes like one of them. Um, some other cities just don't know. Um, I was talking to little cities around here too that are, you know, they, they know what they're going to lose. Maybe they'll only lose a, a $20,000, $40,000 a year. But that's still something to to a city that's most cities these days are running on extremely tight margins. So look for your property taxes to potentially increase next year because of this backfill at the very least. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because this isn't uh, necessarily a partisan issue. Um, I, I was on a recent episode of Iowa Press um, where we talked to a couple of mayors and, and look, in Iowa, mayors are technically nonpartisan officials and technically nonpartisan races, but we are all um, into, yeah, it, Amy's throwing up the air quotes there. Quotes. Um, <laughs> right. We are all uh, functioning adults and, and in most cases know what um, the partisan leanings these officials had. And we had a couple of Republican, uh, you know, conservative type mayors on the show, and they both expressed concern for this decision and this move and the impact it'll have on their cities. They were the mayors of us. Uh, Cedar Rapids, uh, who Todd's obviously familiar with, and and of Johnston, one of the Des Moines suburbs here. Uh, Tom, Tom, before we move on, just real quick, do you hear these same concerns from you know local government leaders in the Quad Cities? Um, yeah, so lawmakers have discussed eliminating the backfill for quite some time. I think maybe since they passed that uh, uh, property tax reform bill back in, in 2013, and so it's been. A recurring concern among Davenport city officials, um, and it's long been on their list of legislative priorities, um, including this year. Um, they didn't talk about it a lot this year. Um, you know, there have been some some other concerns and worries that kind of uh, rose to the forefront that they've been um, talking about, um, particularly um, how to combat a um, spike in violent crime. Um, but they did talk about it a little, you know, they, they say that um, eliminating this backfill, you know, would be devastating um, for the city, especially as cities focus on financial recovery during the pandemic. You know, as Amy said, a lot of cities run on, on tight margins um, and they're also dealing with, um, you know, new and, 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 you know, unexpected expenses and, and um, just new issues and challenges related to the pandemic that have, a cost and a price tag associated with that. Um, and so uh, Davenport received about $3 million in annual backfill payments from the state in recent years. Um, and city officials have noted that the majority of public safety personnel, including both police and fire, are supported primarily through property taxes. Um, and, um, you know, again, earlier this year warned that in order to preserve public safety levels, um, budgets for other city departments uh, potentially would need to have to be reduced by about 11%, uh, an option that they said is not feasible and would jeopardize the city's ability to, um, to provide core services. Um, to avoid that, city officials have urged state officials to work with municipalities to um, phase in the reduction of the backfill in such a way that it wouldn't be so 
um, so harmful or detrimental, um, and also um, urge lawmakers to work with cities to provide other funding tools, including allowing Iowa cities to raise a new dedicated tax to fund public safety personnel. Um, and then um, city officials, too, say that lawmakers should remove a cap limiting the growth on property taxes that pay for city and county services. They say that eliminating the backfill while also limiting revenues will restrict services that constituents require, that they want and need, um, and that cities need a property tax system that is fair, flexible, and predictable so that they can plan into the future and, and make the right financial decisions. Yeah, and, and I, I should, uh, as, as we're discussing this here, it occurs to me, I, I should note in the interest of fairness and the whole picture, part of the justification uh, for this was that the state also um, took the funding for mental health services, which had been a part of local property taxes, and shifted that burden to the to the state, so so local property taxes don't have to fund those services anymore. And I, but you know, so but that said, that it still it remains to be seen what kind of an impact this has on local governments. Todd, I wasn't planning, but I'll, I'll put you on the spot here because I'm I'm just curious. And, and it was interesting. One of the discussions in the legislature was over. You know, the legislature had made a commitment in the past, and then uh, one Republican argued, well, a current legislature isn't bound by the actions of a, of a, of a previous legislature. Um, was this move, just kind of broadly speaking, in your opinion, a, a fair um, move uh, by state lawmakers? I, I mean, to, to Tom's point, it has been discussed and proposed and out there, so it's not like this completely blindsided local leaders. Um, was this a fair move in your view? Well, you know, in 2013, when they passed this, you know, big property tax reduction, cutting property tax on commercial uh, property, and, and also I think they switched uh, uh, the uh, apartments and, and uh, you know, multifam multifamily housing units to residential level taxes instead of commercial. I mean, you know, believing that that was, that the backfill was going to last forever sort of ran counter to all the, the history. I mean, they, you know, the state eliminated this property tax on machinery, machinery, industrial machinery and equipment back in you know, like the late eighties, maybe early nineties. And there was a backfill that came along with that, that then was eventually eliminated. So I think Local officials that thought that this was going to last forever were kind of, you know, wish, wishfully thinking that the history would not repeat itself. Uh, and I don't know, it's and the, and the other thing is that the Republicans were also who were the main drivers behind this property tax uh, package in 2013. They were sort of wrong also because they offered the backfill uh, thinking you know, arguing at the time, yeah, we'll do this backfill, but eventually these commercial property tax cuts will create so much economic growth that you won't need the backfill anymore because the the new taxes collected on, on you know, from all this economic growth would make up for the loss, which didn't happen, which, you know, that's a lot of times with tax cuts, that's the argument and it, it rarely comes to fruition. So, uh, so everybody was sort of, wishfully thinking in 2013. And, and now, uh, I, I think most of us who've paid any attention to the, to the state house and, and how often, uh, when the state, you know, 
if the state has a choice between doing something difficult or taking something away from local governments, <laughs> they'll usually do do the latter and and go ahead and uh, you know go ahead and pass the pain down instead of having to to take it themselves. So yeah, this isn't it's not surprising they eliminated. I'm actually surprised it lasted as long as it did. <laughs> Don't be sad that it's gone. Be grateful that it lasted as long as it did. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to our next topic. And now it's time to talk about one of my stories. There was a rare bipartisan outrage expressed this week when Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and Democratic Congresswoman Cindy Axney criticized a federal immigration agency for being, shall we say, less than forthcoming about the a relocation of refugee children either in or at least through Iowa. Reynolds and Axney both said that they had asked the feds about reports of a flight that brought refugee children to Iowa back in April and that the myriad agencies either did not respond or, as it turns out, maybe weren't totally honest when they did. Uh, this story was interesting to me because at first glance, it it seemed like maybe Reynolds, a Republican governor, was just opposing a Democratic federal administration on immigration policy, which would be a surprise to absolutely no one who follows politics. Uh, but then actually, uh, the Democrat issued a statement that was fairly similar to Reynolds's. And and, and I'll also be honest here, I'm, I'm not well versed enough in federal immigration policy to know how common this kind of thing is with this flight and how transparent federal agencies uh, typically are in cases like this, or if they're expected to be um, transparent with states and in, in when they're, uh, you know, moving refugees like this. Uh, it, Todd, just, a, I don't even necessarily have a specific question. What was your kind of reaction to this story as it unfolded? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think, you know, they, they probably disagree. Axney and Reynolds probably disagree on immigration policy. But, you know, a member of Congress doesn't like to get lied to and hoodwinked. I mean, that's not something that they enjoy and, you know, governors either. So I think the federal government should have been transparent and honest in this situation and and, you know, told the state what they were what they were doing when they were asked. Uh, although, you know, we've seen in the past governors of well, Terry Branstad, for instance, kind of took a harder line position on refugees and they brought refugees anyway. I don't know how much, you know the federal government on immigration has to ask permission of, of governors. But when, you know, when this was circulating and they wanted information, they should have given it to them. Uh, that said, I mean, the, the governor played politics with this from the beginning and said, you know, this isn't our problem and this is the Biden administration's problem. If she had basically agreed to cooperate and take some refugees, this, this uh, clandestine airdrop wouldn't have probably happened. So, uh, I mean, I, but I do understand, and I, th I think the federal government needs to explain, you know, what happened. But she should have, the governor should have also, you know, sort of lived up to the state's, uh, you know, good reputation on bringing in immigrants and refugees dating back to Bob Ray in the 70s. I think a lot of Iowans are justifiably proud of that. And her refusal and sort of callous response uh, made a lot of people, even Republicans, uh, uneasy. I had a question. Do you th do you think that if they would have clued her in beforehand, that she would have tried to stop it? And if so, what would that have looked like? Well, I think she would have, at the very least, made a 
you know, made it into a big political moment where she would have, you know, basically pointed to this and then, you know, demonized the, the immigration process and the Biden administration and the border and all of these things. I mean, I think it would have been a, a moment where she had sought to score some political points. I don't know that she could have stopped it. I don't know if you can send the National Guard out to, you know, escort the plane out of Iowa airspace or something. I, I don't know how all that works. I mean, she's the commander in chief of the National Guard. So right. <laughs> that would have that been, been that would have been a bad idea. <laughs> but yeah, I think it would have been it would have been a big political dust up. So and that's probably one of the reasons that the the feds mm -hmm. didn't want to say much. And and I will say as as I describe this whole process of Axby uh, agreeing in large part with Reynolds, I, I, there was a, a part of Axney's statement um, that was noteworthy in which she said part of the reason she's upset, part of the reason this lack of transparency is bad is that uh, the way this now unfolded will only give fodder to those who want to use the issue of immigration you know, as a political uh, bludgeon. Mm. Uh, so that was a noticeable diversion there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know... The Aside from this, aside from this flight, I mean the like other groups like the Iowa, the Catholic workers in Iowa City have been bringing refugee kids in one at a time on commercial flights for the last couple of months. But you know they were picked up at the airport by their sponsors. They weren't bussed, you know, out or so it was a different situation. But refugees have been coming, even though you know the governor says we don't want any. Yeah. All right. We'll finish up this week with yet one more story from a reporter on this podcast. Hey, can we do self-promotion here? <laughs> James Lynch, before he, before James Lynch temporary left us for a little R and R, he filed a story that'll run uh, over the weekend, early next week, uh, detailing his interview with Rob Sand about the state auditor's 2022 decision-making process. Will he run for re-election? Will he? run for governor. And again, I don't want to give away the farm. So all our loyal listeners will find and read James's story in the coming days. Uh, but San talks a lot about that uh, process of making his big decision. So um, I, we, we were graced with an early copy that I distributed amongst the team here. So let's just uh, go around and get some uh, quick reactions here. A Amy, were you able to read anything between the lines in San's comments and about which way you think he's leaning, if any? Yeah, I, I liked the quote that he gave James about, um, you know, politics needs to change and, and, you know, we need to find ways to get beyond political labels, beyond party affiliations. Um, that's going to be a positioning because um, obviously we're a red state now. If you're just relying on Republican votes, it's very difficult to win. Um, so I think positioning himself in that way, like we've seen other um, Democrats running from, for Senate, for example, positioning themselves as of late is probably a good a good suggestion to me that he's seriously considering. All right, Tom, how about you? What, what did your political radar tell you as you read Rob Sands' comments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's pretty clear that he is uh, leaning heavily uh, toward uh, challenging Reynolds. Um, you know, just with, um, you know, his recent criticisms of how Reynolds has used um, uh, COVID funds um, related to, to the pandemic and, and criticizing the way that, um, again, she's, she's handled the pandemic and, and gone about 
uh, trying to address. And I, I think it's clear that uh, that he and, and, and state Democrats are trying to do their best to make sure that that's an issue um, that kind of dogs Reynolds heading into the 2022 election and that, that issue stays front and center. Um, and then it's not something that um, voters, you know, um, forget about because, you know, voters have a, a, a short um, a short memory and a short attention span, right? And so I think the concern there from Democrats is that, you know, as, um, you know, as we kind of hopefully, you know, um, turn the corner with this pandemic and as more people um, are getting vaccinated and, you know, the economy and businesses and more things start to, to, to open up and as, you know, life tries to start its, you know, return back to normal, um, you know, I think it's clear that Sandin Democrats, you know, want to make clear just kind of the um, the the toll that the pandemic has had on Iowans and and uh, you know how Governor Reynolds is um, you know either wholly or partly responsible for that. All right, Todd and, and Amy touched on this a little bit. Uh, Sand uh, talked a little bit about the state of partisan politics, the need to get away from political labels. Uh, did that sound to you like a candidate for auditor or governor? Oh, I, I think it sounds like a candidate for governor. It sounds like a, a general election candidate for governor. Uh, but, you know, he's got to walk that tightrope because there's going to be a primary mm-hmm. and there are going to be progressive candidates who are going to say, who are going to say no labels. Mm-hmm. You know, look at look at the, the, the Republican label <laughs> is trying to undermine democracy. So I think we need some labels. That's I think that's going to be some of the, the argument there. Yeah, he's going to have, folks on his left that are running and there's a, you know, there's the progressivism in the democratic party in Iowa has grown stronger. I think there's a, there's a, a lot of sentiment out there that, that Democrats can't keep offering sort of moderate sort of, uh, you know, moderate choices, center centrist choices that they need to run on an actual alternative agenda that sharply contrasts them with Republicans, particularly in rural areas where, you know, Democrats have tried pretty hard to to run on the, uh, you know, ethanol, mm-hmm. voluntary water quality measures, uh, all of the, you know, basically not a heck of a lot different than, than, than Republicans, but, you know, somewhat different. And they haven't made inroads at all. So there's, like I say, there's a sentiment that, that the party needs to be its true self and not be afraid and, you know, and go moderate. Although you've seen across the country, uh, moderate Democrats have been winning. So that's that's the counter argument. And Iowa is red and has elected moderate Democrats in the past. Uh, but, you know, the other side will say, what about Tom Harkin, who was a kind of a liberal firebrand? Hmm. But, you know, the Tom Harkin days are long <laughs> past. So, yeah, I think he's I think he's going to run uh, barring some unforeseen circumstance, but and he could be a strong candidate. I mean, when he, when he campaigned for auditor, he ran a great campaign, had really good advertising, a good message and won a statewide election over a Republican incumbent. So, I mean, he's, it's, it's, he's a, he's a strong candidate. Yep. You've touched on something there, uh, Todd, that I think, uh, merits further explanation and uh, exploration, I should say, in, in a future podcast. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack there and that, uh, uh, you know, the different kind of candidates and, and viewpoints within the Iowa Democratic Party and how they can start winning statewide races again. Uh, so loyal listeners, uh, 
come back again and, and we'll have more to say on that one in the future. But that's it for this week's edition of On Iowa Politics. We thank you all for listening and we hope it was worth your time. If you like the show, subscribe and tell a friend and you can send fan mail to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And don't forget the work of everyone you heard here. All those stories that we talked about can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council City Council Bluffs, Daily Nonpareil, and Cedar Rapids Gazette. Stephen Christopher will play us out this weekend. If you know a talented band or I have a musician who should be featured on our show, send us a sound file. For Amy, Tom, Todd, and our producer Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Job. And I lost my girl and so much more Same old country song It seems you've heard a million times before But this one's different in a way that you can't see It's about this ordinary man trying to be a better me cause I'm holding on to a better view I'm rolling with so much in front of me I gotta do
To a place I call my own 